What I'd like to do this afternoon is something that I like to think of as a, uh, an exercise in biblical interpretation. Because sometimes you need to uh, take some other passages and put them with one passage in order to get a better idea of what the meaning is. Uh, sometimes it'll be clarified. Sometimes you just needed the extra information. And uh, I've got four different places in particular that I wanted to look at. Uh, and so we'll be going kind of back and forth uh, a little bit. Uh, if you're following in your Bible, you might uh, tear off a couple of little markers or something. Uh, but the first one is found over in Leviticus chapter 10. In Leviticus chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now, we, we've looked at this uh, passage a few times, and as I've mentioned before, what they're doing is they have a, uh, uh, a utensil, I guess you'd call it. If you watch uh, TV, you've probably seen something like this where they're talking about services in the Catholic Church, and they've got this metal container on a chain, and they swing it around and smoke comes out of it. Uh, they're burning incense. And essentially, that's what Nadab and Abihu were doing. Uh, when it says, and this is the New King James rendering, when it says they offered profane fire before the Lord, what, what it means is they offered ordinary fire. Something that was profane uh, wasn't profane the way we normally think of the term. You know, somebody's using profane language. Uh, what it means is it's something that is not holy. It's plain, it's ordinary, it's everyday. But that's what Nadab and Abihu did, and as a consequence of what they did, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and killed them. Now, over in Numbers chapter 15, uh, you have a, another incident somewhat like that. Uh, in verse 32, it says, Now while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. And then if you go over to Matthew chapter 12 uh, for another one, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is talking uh, to the Pharisees primarily in uh, verse 36. He says, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak they will give account of it in the day of judgment for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned and then in james chapter 2 uh, the verse that was read for us a moment ago it says for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point he is guilty of all now i've heard people talk about uh some of these passages, usually they won't talk about all of them at the same time, that they'll, they'll pick out one uh, or the other. And usually when they're talking about them, they'll, they'll come down on, on one extreme or the other. 
I've heard people who, who don't believe in God, they don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God, they will take passages like this, and they will see, you know, see what God is like. If, the, if your God really does exist, look at the kind of things he does. You know, a couple of poor guys just get fire from the wrong place and he kills them. Some guy's just out picking up sticks on the Sabbath day and God says, stone him to death. You know, if you say one little word, one idle word wrong, you're going to be judged for that. And especially James 2 and verse 10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble, stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. They say, look at that. That is an angry irate God. He is somebody who is looking to punish you, to condemn you for one tiny little mistake that you make. And I have heard Christians kind of on the other extreme, and especially when you're talking about uh, James 2 and verse 10, they will say, how can I know that I'm going to go to heaven? And I've heard them use this verse, and they say, see, if you stumble in one point, it's, it's like you violated the whole law. You've done everything. If there is one little thing that I've done, something I may not even be aware that I've done, and if God is going to condemn me for that, how can I say that I know I'm going to go to heaven? And as, as somebody point, pointed out to me, said it's, it's really curious when you look at members of the Lord's church, who, who are trying their best to practice the truth, and they're saying, I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven or not. I can hope I'm going to go to heaven, but I don't know if I'm going to go or not. And then you have denominational people who are doing pretty much just whatever they want to do, and they say, sure, I know I'm going to heaven. Absolutely, I'm going to go to heaven. There's nothing that could happen that would keep me out of heaven. I could commit every sin in the book, and it wouldn't keep me out of heaven. And they say, you know, that's kind of a, a, a strange thing. When you have people who are doing the right thing, they're practicing the right thing, they're teaching the right thing, they believe the right thing, and they say, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going or not. And people who are making really no attempt to do the right thing who say, sure, I'm going to go. Do these passages teach that it's that hard for a person to get into heaven? That one tiny little mistake will condemn you. Do these passages teach that? Now, here's where it is, it's an exercise in biblical interpretation, because one of the first things that you need to do is you need to go and look at the passages in question and look at the context. Look at the verses that are surrounding that passage that you're interested in. Find out who is doing the talking. Who are they talking to? What's the subject under discussion? You need to know these things in order to have a better idea of what is actually being talked about. Now, again, you go back over to Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron... This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Now, what does that tell us? 
Why did God kill Nadab and Abihu? He says, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. God is giving that as, as his reason for killing Nadab and Abihu. So what you have is you have two priests. Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, are priests. They're coming to offer incense before God as God has commanded them, but they are not regarding God as holy, evidently. They're not glorifying God before the people. So what you have, I mean, it's not explicitly stated in Scripture here, but you can certainly draw the inference that what happened is Nadab and Abihu were saying, God said, get the, the fire from the altar. Too much trouble. Doesn't matter what kind of fire you use. We're just going to use whatever kind of fire we want. And God says, if, if you think that you can go against my commands like that, you are seriously mistaken. It's not the act so much as it is the attitude. They decided that they could do what they wanted to do rather than what God had commanded them. So yes, it does look like it's a, a relatively minor detail, but when you start thinking about the attitude behind it, it's not that minor after all. God says, I must be regarded as holy by those who come before me, and they weren't doing it. So Aaron held his peace. Now you go back over into Numbers chapter 15. Interesting thing about this is prior to the verses that we were looking at, you have uh, different laws, uh, different sacrifices, uh, the, uh, the, the Jews are being told or the Israelites are being told the things that they're supposed to do. You have laws concerning unintentional sin beginning in verse 22. And it goes on and says, verse 29, you shall have one law for him who sin sins unintentionally for him who is native born among the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwells among them. It's the same law for everybody. Whether you're one of God's people, the Israelites, or whether you're a stranger who happens to be living there, the law is the same. But, this is verse 30, but the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. He says, if it's unintentional sin, that's one thing. But if it's intentional, if it's presumptuous, somebody says, I know what God wants, but I'm going to do what I want. He says, there's no excuse for that. And then in verse 32, you have the account of the man picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Now, the interesting thing about this, one of the things that you have to remember is God does not put things here just to fill space. It's not here accidentally. It's here for a reason. Now, sometimes the reason may not be of that great of an importance to us in this particular place at this particular time. You know, when he's talking about all of the genealogies and things that prove that Jesus was from the line of David. Those things, we believe that. We don't have to have it proved to us again. So it's not that big of a deal. But these things are here for a purpose. 
So in, in Numbers chapter 15, you have laws concerning grain and drink offerings. You have laws concerning unintentional sin. You have laws concerning presumptuous sin. Then you have the man that was gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And then you have laws concerning tassels on garments, things like that. Why did he stick that account in there in that particular place? He's talking about laws concerning unintentional sin, presumptuous sin, the man caught picking up sticks on the Sabbath, laws concerning the tassels on your garments. It's not put there by accident. What you have is God gives them the rules concerning presumptuous sin, and then you have an example of what he's talking about. The man was picking up sticks on the Sabbath, and it wasn't for the act, it was for the attitude. I know what God said, I'm going to do what I want to do. And again, it is not explicitly stated in Scripture that that's the case, but when you look at it, that's the only conclusion you can draw. God is not going to condemn somebody to be stoned to death for little tiny things. You know, think about David. We've been studying about David for quite a lot in, in, in uh, Bible study classes of late, and we've seen a lot of the things that David did. If you were going to rate the sin of picking up sticks on the Sabbath against some of the things that David did, where would you put it? It'd be way down here. I mean, it doesn't rank with adultery and murder and things like that at all. David was a man after God's own heart. Yes, David made mistakes, but David owned up to his mistakes. David repented of his mistakes. He never tried to weasel out of them. When it was pointed out to him by the prophet Nathan, what he had done, he said, I have sinned. And he wasn't going about doing things thinking, well, God said not to do this, but I just think I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway because I want to. He made mistakes like a lot of us do. We do it without thinking about it. We've done something that's wrong before we really gave it enough thought, and then we, oh, no, what did I do? This man didn't do that. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he chose to do what he wanted to do rather than doing what God said to do. And you have the same thing when you get over into uh, Matthew chapter 12. When he's talking about every idle word that men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Back up a little bit. In verse 33, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his, uh, brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it on the day of judgment, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus is saying, you can tell what a person is by the kind of things they say. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you are on the inside will come out, but not always. You know, we, we all show different sides of ourselves to different people. And what Jesus is saying here when he's talking about idle words, he's not talking about God's just looking for an excuse to condemn you. The point that he's making is, is that the words you speak in unguarded moments, those really reveal what you are. 
You're, you're not trying to put a front on for somebody else. You're not trying to give somebody else a, a good opinion of you. You're not trying to impress somebody with your vocabulary. This is just you coming out of your mouth. You're saying what you really are. You're not trying to, to uh, give anybody a, a good impression. He says that really reveals what you are. So it's not that God is looking for little tiny mistakes that we make in order to condemn us. He's just saying that what you say in unguarded moments reveals what you are. And God will call you to account for that. Again, you know, it's as much attitude as it is action. It's not so much what you do, because everybody has said things that they wish they hadn't said. Either you, you say something about somebody and you, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. doesn't matter if it's true or not. You know, that's one of the things people talk about gossip. In Scripture, it's oftentimes referred to as tail-bearing. And it doesn't have anything to do with whether it's true or not. I, I, I've seen people, you say something to them about gossiping, and they say, oh, I would never tell anything about anybody that wasn't true. doesn't matter. It, did it need to be said? When it comes to gossip, truth does not even enter into the, to the discussion. Did you need to say it? Because if it's true or not, if you didn't need to say it, you shouldn't have said it. So sometimes people think that, you know, these little things are going to be all right. I'm going to get by with them. But that's not the case either. Now, uh, over in James chapter 2, and I skipped over this this morning, and I did it on purpose because I wanted to talk about it tonight. In James chapter 2, when he begins uh, talking about partiality, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. In other words, you cannot say that somebody is unworthy of the gospel. It doesn't matter if it has to do with their, their social status, the color of their skin, their education level, or what. As far as God is concerned, a soul is a soul, and they're all equally valuable. And if God is going to see them all as being equally valuable, then we have to see them all as being equally valuable as well. We cannot be partial because we don't happen to like something about them. He says, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You are placing a greater value on somebody because of the material goods that he has. And he says, if you're doing that, you're a judge with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you're called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. 
So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What he's saying when he says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. He is pointing this at people who think little sins don't count. That's what he's talking about. They are thinking in their minds, well, okay, if I'm showing partiality to rich people and I'm looking down at poor people, that's a little minor thing. You know, God's not going to bother himself with little minor things like that. I can do this and I'm not going to get called to account for it. It's not that big of a deal. These little tiny sins don't matter. And James is saying, yes, they do. If you think that you can get away with something because you, at least in your mind, think of it as a minor sin, James is saying, oh, no, you can't. Because if you commit sin, you are a sinner. So saying I'm excused because it's a minor sin, that's wishful thinking on your part, and it doesn't have any basis in truth. And you better think about it as this is a serious matter with God. He says, you know, if you fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. He refers to it as the royal law, not showing partiality. He says, if you think you can get by with it because it's a small sin, think again. And we tend to do that. We think about sins as being great big sins or little tiny sins, especially when you're talking about lying. You know, uh, everybody, you know, oh, that's a big black lie. It's just a little tiny white lie. You know, that doesn't count. Yeah, it does. Not because of the lie that you told so much as the attitude that I can get away with it. God's not going to hold me to account for this. Yes, he will. Anytime that we start thinking we can get away with something, we've got a serious, serious problem. And, and that's what... You see, in all of these passages, somebody decided that they were going to do what they wanted to do, regardless of what God said to do. And God sees that very seriously. He doesn't let that go by. And that, in my mind, is one of the, the greatest problems with denominationalism. You know, you, you see in, in Scripture what God wants us to do as far as organization of the church, work of women in the church, uh, plan of salvation, on and on and on. God tells us what he wants. And they decide, I'm going to do something different. We think we'd be better off doing this. We think this will make things better. You know, you, you're, you're going to make it better than the way God designed it? You think you have a better pattern than God did? Anytime you start thinking, I'm going to do it my way instead of the way God said to do it, you have a very serious problem. You can't do that. Whether it's, you know, I know God said don't pick up sticks on the Sabbath day, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway because I want to. Or God said use fire from the altar, but, you know, it's easier to get this fire over here, so I'm going to do that. Or, or any of these things, God requires us to be obedient. We have to have the mindset that I'm going to do what God said do, the way God said do it, 
for the reason God said do it, whether I understand it or not. Because to do otherwise is a serious, serious problem. So oftentimes it's the action, it's not the action, it's more the attitude that counts. Now, there are some people that would say, oh, okay, so attitude's everything, huh? So that means as long as I'm doing it with a sincere heart, then God will accept anything I do, right? Wrong. That doesn't work either. You know, we talked some about uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 this morning. And when you look at that, you know, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. You know, you're going to have a lot of sincere people on the day of judgment that are going to say, you, we, we acknowledged you as our Lord. How can we possibly be lost? I was sincere in what I did. How can I possibly be lost? And, and Jesus is going to say, because you had to do the will of my Father, and you didn't do it. You had access to it. You could have found exactly what God wanted you to do, and you didn't do it. They'll say, but Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, in your name done many wonderful works? He said, I didn't know you. You were never one of mine because you didn't do what you were supposed to do. Attitude is important, but attitude is not everything. You have to have the right attitude and you have to do the right thing. What, what did Jesus tell that Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4? God is a spirit, and those who come to God must worship him in spirit and in truth. You have to worship him with the right attitude, and you have to do it in the right way. Now, you can look at people who were doing the right things, but with the wrong attitude in Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus starts pronouncing his woes on the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You're doing all the right things. You pay tithes of mint, anise, and cumin. You neglected the way to your matters of the law, justice and mercy. He said, these you should have done and not left the other undone. It's not one or the other, both. You do the right things with the right attitude. But now, one of the things, and I've, I've had a lot of people, I mentioned this a bit ago, I've had a lot of people that look at James chapter 2 and verse 10, and they really, really have a, a serious problem with the idea that, you know, there may be some little minor thing that I have done, and I don't even know I've done it. And God may condemn me for that. There was a guy that was talking about the attitude that he had. He said when he was a youngster, uh, he used to ride with his mother a lot, and he said the, the road uh, coming out of town was a really narrow, windy road. And he said a lot of the time, you know, you couldn't see what was coming around the curve. And you might get halfway around the curve and here comes a semi halfway on the wrong side of the road, scare you half to death. And he said he used to spend the whole trip, you know, just as they're about to go around each curve saying, God, if I've done anything, forgive me, just in case they got hit by a car on the other side of the curve. Because he had the idea in his mind, if I don't ask God to forgive me for whatever sins I've got in my life, some of them that I may not even know about, if I don't ask him to forgive me five seconds before I die, I may die with some sin to my account and I'll be lost. 
So he thought, you know, it, it, just every little bit, I've got to ask God, God, please forgive me for anything I might have done. God, forgive me for anything I might have done. And, and then he said, finally, somebody explained grace to him. And he said he finally got it. A, a lot of members of the Lord's church have the same kind of attitude that that guy did. They, they kind of have the idea that God is just looking for some little thing. He's waiting for me to do some little thing wrong so he can condemn me, which is exactly the opposite of what so much of the religious world thinks. They think they, they can do anything they want and everything's going to be fine. Both views are wrong. In the 103rd Psalm, the psalmist says, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's, the Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. God knows the handicaps that we labor under. He knows our frame. He knows the weakness of physical flesh. He knows the, the avenues of temptation that are open to us as physical beings. He knows we have problems with these things. God is merciful. He is not just looking for excuses to condemn us. That's not what he's doing at all. I've oftentimes said that one of the best things I think you could do uh, would be to take, make a copy of uh, 1 John chapter 1 and put it on the wall somewhere, you know, put it on the mirror in the bathroom or put it on your refrigerator or someplace where you're going to see it and read it every day. Because uh, John tells us a lot of things that would give people a lot of comfort if they would just stop and think about them every now and then. You know, John tells us that if we say we have fellowship with God and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. When he's talking about walking, he's talking about how do you live your life as a practice? He's not talking about these little, you know, occasional incidents. He's talking about this is the way you mostly act. This is the way you live for the most part. And he says, if, if for the most part, you're walking in darkness, you're doing whatever you want to do, and you say that you have fellowship with God, you're a liar. That's not going to happen. But if we walk in the light, 
as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If I, for the most part, as a habit of life, live according to God's rule, then the blood of Christ continually cleanses me from sin. And if I make some little mistake, five seconds before I die, the blood of Christ will still cleanse me of that, even if I don't have enough time to say, God, please forgive me. Because he, he is not just going to save people who have the, the option of being able to do that. You know, a lot of people die before they know it's coming. And that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about how do you live your life if you live your life properly, not perfectly, but properly, the blood of Christ continues to cleanse you from sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we go around and say, well, I don't sin. I've never done anything wrong. God can't condemn me. <laughs> oh, yes, he can. Partly for what you just said. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If I am willing to admit that I am wrong when I am wrong, it's covered. If we confess our sins, now he's, again, he's not talking about, you know, you've got that, that five second gap between the time that you realize death is coming and it gets here, and you're going to say, God, please forgive me for whatever it was I did just a little while ago. He's not talking about that. He's talking about having the attitude of David. When you find out that you have sinned, when you're confronted with it, when, it, when it's brought to your attention, you say, I sinned. You don't make excuses for it. You don't try to do like King Saul and find everybody else in the world to blame for it. You say, I have sinned. God forgive me. And then you try not to do it again. That's the kind of person he's talking about here. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's not looking for excuses to condemn us. God is looking for ways to accept us, but we've got to do our part. So when you, 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 you find people that say, well, you know, if I do one little thing, I'm lost, you know, take them over to Psalm 103 and say, how does that jive with what the psalmist says here? Because it doesn't. Sometimes you, like to, you, you need to go a little farther out than the immediate context and when you start thinking about uh, places like Leviticus chapter 10 or Numbers chapter 15 and, and thinking, well, you know, God's just looking for excuses to condemn me, go a little farther out, look at Psalm 103, 1 John chapter 1, and it will tell you God's not the kind of God that'll do that. He's not looking for excuses to condemn us. If he was looking for excuses to condemn us, he could have done that and never sent Jesus to die for our sins. You know, we all are worthy of death because of the sins we've committed. Jesus didn't have to die for us, but that's what God wanted because he wanted to give us the opportunity to accept the gift and go to heaven when we die. That's what he wants for us. Again, as long as I'm sincere, doesn't necessarily cut it either. You not only have to have the right attitude, you have to do the right things. It's like a recipe. It's not one or the other. You've got to have them both. If you're going to come to God, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
That's what God requires. It may be that there's someone here that's not a Christian. God, through his grace and mercy, has given you another opportunity to be obedient to the gospel of Christ. You could come forward <coughs> confessing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, and you could be baptized to have your sins washed away. Or it might be that you're an erring child of God. You've done something that has, has separated you from God. If that be the case, you need to go to God in prayer. Confess your sin to him from a repentant heart and ask him to forgive you. And he's promised to do that. If your sin is public in nature, then your repentance should be public as well so that you'll not bring shame and reproach upon the church. Or it could be that you just need to come forward and ask for the prayers of those that are gathered here for some other reason. Whatever your need is, we ask that you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing. <laughs>